All right, you guys can turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Well, this week was a big week in the life of my family because my twins turned five this week. They're getting big. They're getting surprisingly old. They're going up fast. It was really fun to play with them. You can, you can totally see their personalities right there. That's about all you need to know about Luke and Gracie Jennings in that picture. Uh, we had a lot of fun with them. It was a really great birthday. But, and, and you parents, you'll, you'll follow me on this. It was hard to see the unadulterated greed that a birthday brings out. I, I, I grieve over that every year. When birthday time arrives, you see the greed that's always there in your kids, but it really comes out. It's not just my kids, it's all kids. When it's time for your birthday, they just get totally consumed with the hope of presents. And so everything becomes about presents. And the grandparents show up with packages under the arm and no one cares about the grandparents. It's all about the presents. And what did you bring me? And they open up the presents and 30 seconds later, they're asking again, so what else did you bring me? It's hard when your kids have a birthday to see the greed that's there in their hearts. It's hard because it's convicting. Because let's be honest, we know it's not just our kids who are greedy. I am just as greedy as my kids. I'm just a whole lot better at hiding it. It's what it means to be an adult. You get really good at hiding all the same sins that you had when you were a little kid. I'm just as greedy as my kids because greed is endemic to the human race. As human beings, we are by nature greedy. We crave more than is rightfully ours. That's what greed means. You, you, you crave, you desperately desire more than is rightfully yours. That, that is true of all human beings. We are greedy by nature. We crave more than we have. That is actually the basis of the culture and economy that we live in. John Foreman with Switchfoot put it this way, really insightful statement. Greed, envy, sloth, pride, and gluttony, these are not vices anymore. No, these are marketing tools. Lust is our way of life. Envy is just a nudge towards another sale. Even in our relationships, we consume each other. Each of us is looking for what we can get out of the other. Greed is within all of our hearts. To be human is to be greedy. And so this morning, we're going to confront that that greed that is in all human hearts. We're going to look at it, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to learn how to fight it, how to push back against that temptation to be greedy that is in all human beings. So the passage we're looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, look with me as Paul speaks to a church that had allowed greed to run rampant in their church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, you do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. 
Now, at first glance, you read that passage and you assume that the topic we'll be talking about this morning is lawsuits. That's what it seems like the passage is about, taking another person to court. But it's actually not. This passage isn't about lawsuits. It's actually about greed. That's the big idea of this passage. But I have to prove it to you. I have to explain to you the background behind what's going on in this passage. So let me give you a little of the legal context behind what Paul's talking about in this passage. Let me answer a couple questions for you. The first is what type of legal case does Paul have in mind? What type of courts is Paul got in view in this passage? Well, in verse 1, when he says that neighbor dares to go to law before neighbor, uh, in verse 2, when he talks about constituting the smallest law courts, those words make it clear that we are not talking about criminal law. These are not criminal cases about violence or theft or abuse. These are civil cases. This is civil court where one individual is suing another individual over money or property or something like that. So, uh, let's just be really clear for a second, because this passage has been used wrong in, in the past by a lot of churches and a lot of believers. First Corinthians chapter 6 is not there to discourage a believer from going to the law or to the court when a crime has been committed. And when a crime has been committed, God wants you to go to the police. He wants you to go to lawyers. He wants you to go cooperate with the judges because you have a God who loves justice. And so we should love justice as well. This passage isn't about criminal cases at all. So when you see a woman being abused by a man, you go to law for that. When you see a retiree whose whose savings are stolen by a thief, you go to law for that. So when it's a criminal case, you go to law. It's not what this passage is about. It's about civil courts, civil cases. So the second question that forces us to ask is, why is Paul down on civil courts? Why is he not okay with a believer going to a civil court or suing someone else? Well, to answer that, you've got to know a couple things about civil courts in Paul's day that will help you understand why it was wrong for a believer to go to the court. First thing that you need to know is that in Paul's day, civil courts were incredibly corrupt. Incredibly corrupt. These local civil courts that decided matters of, of money or property, they were all incredibly corrupt. They were led by corrupt men, corrupt lawyers and corrupt judges. You can actually read the literature back from, from Paul's day about, about these courts in all of the Greek world, but especially in Corinth where corruption was even more endemic. Dia Chrysostom, a first century writer, says of the, of, uh, the courts in Corinth, there were lawyers innumerable perverting justice. Lawyers would say whatever you want them to say if you would fund their, their desires, if you would pay them enough. They'd say anything, they'd do anything that was required. It wasn't just the lawyers who were corrupt, though. Apelius from the second century described Roman judges as gowned vultures who sell their judgments for money. It was actually known in Corinth and throughout that part of the world that basically going to civil court was going to an auction. And the judgment would go to whoever bid the highest. Judges and lawyers were bribed. They, they could be bought for a price to decide in your favor. And so that is why Paul is so harsh in this passage on lawyers and judges. He's really harsh on these guys. He calls them unrighteous there in verse, verses 1 and 2. Unrighteous, it's not just a statement of their spiritual state. They are unbelievers, but that's not really Paul's point. It's a description of their behavior. They were evil men. Really evil men. They had to be evil to become a judge or a lawyer in Paul's day. There were evil men whose lives were characterized by verses 9 and 10. Hey, verses 9 and 10 are often misunderstood and misapplied by people. Verses 9 and 10 is not a list of sins that if you commit these sins, you go to hell. 
That's not what these verses are about. You notice Paul mentions covetousness. Well, in the book of Romans, Paul tells us he struggled with covetousness all the time, and yet he never doubted his salvation. So this, this is not a catalog of sins that condemn you to hell. That's not what this is about. This is a list that Paul is giving us to help us understand how evil the judges and lawyers were in his day. These weren't just unbelievers. These were men who lived lives characterized by these sins, not one time committing these sins, but regularly committing these sins. So he lists out all of these horrible sins that these men have committed, fornicators, that is, uh, having sex before marriage, roughly, it can refer to general sexual immorality, adultery, that's sex outside of marriage, idolatry, worshiping as God, anything that's not God, effeminate, you gotta explain that one, it's a technical term, meaning the submissive partner in male homosexual sex, Homosexual, that's a technical term for the dominant partner in male homosexual sex. Thieves and swindlers, those who stole or conned people out of their money. Covetous, those who were greedy for what other people had. Drunkards, not just those who drink to excess, but those who won't get help. So they they won't get help to treat their addiction to alcohol or drugs. Revilers, a person who is abusive or violent towards other people. So, so these men, these judges and these lords, it's not just that they're unbelievers, it's their lives are characterized by all of this evil. So Paul concludes, if these men continue in their rebellion against God, demonstrated by their incredibly unrighteous lives, they will indeed not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They will inherit wrath from God instead. So Paul wants us to understand how evil these men were, and that, and that helps us understand why it was wrong for people to go to court in the ancient world. Because with the courts being this corrupt, where judgments were bought by the highest bidder, what happened really quickly is that rich people in the Greek world, they realized that every judge could be bought. And so they realized that since they have money, they could take poor people to court, buy the judge, and get anything they wanted. So actually, in the ancient world, the courts became a tool for the rich to oppress the poor. Actually, in places like Corinth, courts going to court, suing other people, became a form of entertainment for rich people because you knew you'd win. The the deck was stacked in your favor. You take a middle class or poor person to court, you win whatever you want from them. And so Paul sees that and he sees believers participating in that. That's, that's the point behind Paul's rebuke in verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Paul's speaking to rich believers. No poor believer, no middle class believer could do verse 8 because they couldn't buy the judge. They could not wrong or defraud their brethren. This is rich believers. Paul is, is furious. He is angry because rich believers in the Corinthian church are doing what all rich people did in Paul's day. They're taking advantage of a corrupt legal system to crush and oppress the poor. That's why Paul's angry. That's the first reason that believers were not allowed to go to civil courts because they were all corrupt in Paul's day. Second thing to know about these civil courts in Paul's day, second reason it was wrong to take your brother to court is that they were public. They were public. In our day and age, if you go to court, you go to a building. We call it a courthouse. You go inside a building and, and the case is, is, is held, the case is listened to, and it's generally fairly confidential. It wasn't that way in Paul's day. Courts were open air, actually in the middle of of the city at a place called the Bema Seat. Here's Corinth, the map of Corinth. And the circle there, the red circle, is the civil court. 
was not a building. It was the middle of the public square. It's surrounded by shops. So the whole city would be out shopping, doing their daily business, and they would all be able to listen and see these civil court proceedings. Actually, to make it even more entertaining for you, they built a big stand. This is the Bema seat in Corinth. So it's a big platform. It's not a building. It's a platform. And the lawyers and judges would, would stand up there so everybody could see them and hear them. And the way that you won a civil court in Paul's day is you shamed your opponent. So rich people would hire the best lawyers lawyers to shame the poor, to shame whoever else they're going to court against. So those lawyers would drag these these poor brethren, they'd drag their names through the mud, they'd lie about them, they'd say whatever was required so that the rich man would win. That makes Paul furious. The rich believers are taking poor believers to court and shaming them publicly, airing everyone's dirty laundry, doing whatever it takes to win and bringing shame, not just on the poor believer, but on the church and on the reputation of Jesus Christ. And that's really the, the essence of the passage, that, that they're bringing shame upon the reputation of Jesus Christ by participating in this corrupt legal system. So that's the background. That's why Paul says it's never okay for a believer to go to court or sue another believer. But what do we do in our day and age? How do we apply this passage today? Because we don't live in Paul's world. Our courts are not corrupt. Our courts are not public. We are blessed to have one of the most just, righteous, and confidential legal systems you'll find anywhere in the world. Now, I know it's not perfect. And any time that we as followers of Christ see injustice in our legal system, we should fight against it because we follow a God who loves justice. So fight injustice wherever you see it, but pause for a minute and give thanks that you live under one of the most righteous, confidential legal systems the world has ever known. Okay, so when you have that in mind, when you understand that our context is not like Paul's context, well, well that leads you to understand that our application is not going to be identical to Paul's application. We don't live in their world. Our courts are not like their courts. So here's what that means. Let me get really practical for a moment. In our day and age, today, in America, it is okay for believers to become judges and lawyers. Let's just make that really clear. Paul's day, it wasn't. There's some countries today where it's not okay. In our country, it is okay because, here's why, you can become a lawyer and a judge and not be corrupt. You can become a lawyer and a judge and uphold the law and uphold truth, and God loves that. My brother's a lawyer. I love lawyers. They're great, as long as they're pursuing truth and justice. If you're pursuing a bribe, if you're pursuing influence, then it's never okay. But you can, as a believer, in good conscience, become a lawyer or a judge because God has blessed our nation with a just legal system. That's the first thing to understand. It's okay for believers to become lawyers and judges. Second, in our day and age, it is okay for believers to sue and go to court even against another believer if, and this is the key, if the goal is justice or protection, not greed or revenge. In Paul's day and age, you could not go to court and get justice or protection because that's not what it's about. It was all about greed. So, so it was never okay for believers to go to court in Paul's day. In our day, we have a legal system that is just, that, that seeks truth, that seeks righteousness, and so it is okay, it is permissible for believers in America today to take another person to civil court to sue if the goal is justice or protection, not greed or revenge. Now often, and we can all think of examples of this, often people take other people to court motivated by greed. You want more than what's rightfully yours. That's never okay. 
Often they do it motivated by revenge. You just want to hurt the other person. That's never okay. But if you're going to court to seek justice, to seek truth, to seek protection, that is permissible. That's okay. Because our legal system can provide that, unlike Paul's. Okay, so you put that up on the board, you, you, you think about that for a minute, and you realize, well, the application of 1 Corinthians 6 for us isn't about lawsuits. It's not about going to court, because we live in a different world than Paul did. So what's the application for us? How do we apply this passage to ourselves? Well, you get down to the core idea. It's not about lawsuits. It's not about going to court. The core idea of this passage is greed. That's the most fundamental principle in this passage. Paul is rebuking greedy, rich believers who are taking advantage of a corrupt system to amass more wealth and more power at the expense of the poor and middle class. He's calling out greed. That's the timeless principle. This is an attack on greed within the church. That's where our focus needs to be. As we look at how to apply this passage to ourselves, the timeless principle for us is, is it is never okay for followers of Christ to give in to greed. We have to fight greed wherever we see it. We must resist this temptation to greed that is in all of our hearts. It's there. It's in our children. It's in us too. We're just better at hiding it. We must fight that temptation to greed within all of us. So, I want to give you guys some principles to help you to fight that temptation of greed that's in all of us. We're going to start by talking about us as a church. How do we protect Grace Bible Church from greed? How do we keep greed from tearing us apart like it was tearing the church in Corinth apart? I'm going to give you two principles. To protect Grace Bible Church from the temptation of greed. First principle here at Grace we will give no preference to the rich and powerful. No preference at all to the rich and powerful. In our world, money means everything. Out in the world, outside of these walls, everything's defined by how much money you have. If you have enough money, you get lots of honor, lots of influence, lots of opportunity. If you give enough money to the president, you will get invited to dinner at the White House. And that's not just true for the current president. That's true for all of the previous presidents. You raise or give six figures to their campaign. You will have dinner with the president, unlike the rest of us, because money buys influence. That's not just true in a political environment. That's true right here down the street at A&M. You give enough money to A&M, they'll name a whole building after you. Not because you're a better Aggie than the rest of us, but because you gave more money. You had more wealth to give. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's how our world works. Nothing surprising about that. In our world, money means everything. But in the church, inside these walls, money ought to mean nothing. Absolutely nothing. You come in here, your, your bank account, your net worth means nothing to us. You don't get special honor, special privilege, special access, special influence because of the size of your bank account or the amount that you give. You don't get any special preference here. You come here with lots of money. We're not going to give you a leadership position because of your money because we recognize money, wealth, has nothing to do with spiritual maturity. There's a lot of poor people who are more spiritually mature than a lot of rich people. So so we're not going to give special honors, special access, special leadership positions. If you give a lot of money, we're never going to name a building after you. That's not how we work. We hope that you'll give because you believe in the mission of Grace Bible Church, but even if you give a crazy amount of money, we're not going to name a building after you because that's not how it works in the church. So it's okay up at A&M. It's not okay here because in the church, we must give no special preference, honor, or access to those who are wealthy. We treat all people the same regardless of net worth. 
That's the first principle that protects us from greed. Church must not give special preference to the rich and powerful. It shames us if we do. Bring shame on the name of Christ if we act like the rest of the world and honor people's bank accounts and wealth. Okay, so we give no special preference to the rich and powerful. That's the first thing that protects us. Second principle that protects us, we judge greed in the church when we see it. Remember the context of this part of 1 Corinthians. Last week, chapter 5, actually a couple weeks ago, chapter 5 was about church discipline. And the particular sin in view was incest. Well, the context is still church discipline. The sin in this part of chapter 6 is greed. The sin in the second part of chapter 6 is sexual immorality. The context here is is church discipline, that we as a church are called to judge, to confront and challenge sin in our midst. Not called to judge sin out in the world. We have no business judging people in the world for their sin, but we do have every business judging sin when we see it in the church. God has called us to do that. And God has blessed us with leaders, with elders who are wise and capable of confronting sin and resolving conflict. That's actually Paul's point in verses 3 through 5. He wants us to understand that God has equipped believers to be able to judge sin and resolve disputes. The proof is the fact that God in the future is going to entrust the whole world to us. We're going to judge the whole world. We're going to judge angels when Jesus comes back. It's actually a common theme in the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. If you're faithful to Jesus in this life, you will stand next to Jesus when he rules the world in the next life. You will rule the world with him. You will judge the world and judge angels. And so if we're going to judge the world, surely we're competent to judge ourselves today. That's what God is calling us to do, to call out sin when we see it, especially the sin of greed. When we see believers acting in a greedy way, we can't be silent about that. We must confront that and rebuke that and judge that sin. Sadly, that often doesn't happen, especially with the sin of greed. There's a lot of churches that will throw up their arms when they see sexual immorality, but they see greed and they remain silent. And God is not okay with that. That brings shame because the world sees that hypocrisy and judges us because of that. We have to remember that we we worship a Savior when, when, when he was here on earth was much quicker to condemn a greedy Pharisee than an immoral prostitute. God cares deeply about greed. We need to as well can't be silent about it. When we see greed here in these walls, in the church, we got to confront it, we got to rebuke it, we got to judge it. It's a serious sin. So the way that we protect Grace Bible Church from the influence of greed, from greed tearing us apart, is we give absolutely no preference or honor to the rich and powerful, and we judge and confront greed within our walls whenever we see it. That's how we protect the church. But how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect ourselves as individuals when we feel the temptation towards greed? Because it's, it's there for all of us. We're all tempted by greed. So how do we fight that temptation in our hearts? I'll give you four principles for how to fight the greed that is inside of you. Four things very practical that you need to do if you want to push back on the greed that is inside your heart. First thing that you need to do is you need to admit your vulnerability. You need to admit that you are tempted by greed. It was interesting this week in preparation for this sermon, I went to Google and I entered the phrase outrageous examples of greed. I hit enter and and two pages of articles came up and almost all of the articles were titled either outrageous examples of corporate greed or outrageous examples of government greed. One set written by Republicans, one set written by Democrats. 
<laughs> they're, they're really all the same, though, because what are both sides doing? Both sides are shifting the blame. Won't blame myself for greed. I won't look at the greed that is in me as an individual. I will shift it either to corporations or I will shift it to the government. But that's ironic because corporations and the government are just made up of people like us, like you and me. We will shift the blame for greed. We know that greed is a problem. We live in a society that understands that greed is bad and it's rampant. They just won't take personal responsibility for it. They'll blame it on anyone or anything else they can. We must not do that. We must recognize and acknowledge the greed that's within each of us. The problem of greed is right here. It's not with some CEO out there. It's not with some government agency out there. It's right here in me. Got to admit our vulnerability to greed. It's kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous. So somebody goes to an AA meeting and they stand up and what is the first thing they say? Hi, I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic. They admit that they have that problem. They have that vulnerability because they know that that's where healing begins. You cannot get better until you admit your problem. We need to do the same thing with greed. So hi, I'm Blake and I'm greedy. I crave shiny new things. I want more than is rightfully mine. I struggle to be content. I always have. I always will in this life. Got to admit that we struggle with greed. Admit that you're tempted by that. It's only when you admit that greed is your problem that you'll be able to fight it, that you'll be able to resist it. Jesus told all of us, he's speaking to all of us, Luke 12, 15, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Every form of greed that's in you, that's in your heart, that's tempting you. You need to acknowledge that you are vulnerable to greed, that you are tempted to be greedy. Take ownership of that fact. Believe that about yourself. And then you will be ready to fight. If you'll admit that you have a problem with greed, then you're ready to fight. And the way that you fight greed is you practice three spiritual disciplines that are the next points I want to give you. I want to give you three habits that if you will put these habits in place in your life, they will keep you from becoming greedy. They'll protect your heart from greed. So the first spiritual discipline, the discipline of gratitude. The habit of giving thanks to God every day for the good things he's given you, the good things he's done in your life. Now some of you have been here long enough to know that that's my application in about 50% of my sermons. I talk about the discipline of gratitude all the time. Why? Because I literally believe that it is God's solution to 50% of your problems in life. If you will practice gratitude, if you will get in the habit of giving thanks to God morning, noon, and night, it will protect you from most of the bad things in your life, most of the temptations you face. Gratitude is incredibly powerful. It protects you from all kinds of temptations, including greed. Gratitude protects you from, from greed by, by fighting against um, really the, the two most dangerous words in the English language, two words that empower and, and inspire greed. If you practice gratitude, it will, it will silence these two words in your mind, two most dangerous words in the English language that empower greed. I deserve it's always the two words behind greed. Why are you greedy? Because you believe, I deserve more money. I deserve a bigger house. I deserve a nicer car. I deserve better clothes. I deserve this nicer vacation. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. Those words will always empower and inspire greed. So let's talk truth. What is it that you deserve? What does every human being on this planet deserve from God right now? Death. 
That is all any of us has ever deserved or will ever deserve from God. The Bible's really clear, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. Wages, that's getting what you deserve from God. If you want what you deserve, it's to die. All human beings deserve death. And so everything you get in life that is not death is a gift. Everything in your life, your body, your relationships, the house you live in, the clothes you have, the car you drive, the education that you're getting, all of it is a gift that you do not deserve. The fact that your heart beat a couple seconds ago was a gift. You did not deserve it beating because all you deserve in life is death. Practicing the discipline of gratitude will remind you of that truth. It will remind you that everything good in your life has come to you, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, but because God is good, because he's gifted it to you in grace. If you will practice the discipline of giving thanks, morning, noon, and night, as you go to class, as you drive to work, giving thanks for everything God has done for you, it will protect your heart from greed because it will remind you that you do not deserve anything good, that all of it is a gift. So practice this discipline of giving thanks. Morning, noon, and night, everywhere you go, give thanks to God for all he's done in your life. That's the first thing you must do to protect your heart from greed. Second discipline you gotta practice. Discipline of generosity. Discipline of generosity. Jesus says in Luke 12, 33 to 34, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That last sentence is really significant. That last sentence is telling you that your money is much more powerful than you realized. Your money has power over your heart. That means over your affections, over your desires. Where you give your money is where your affections will follow. Your heart follows your money. And so if you spend all your money on yourself, on your desires, on possessions for you, on pleasures for you, on comforts for you, then you can't help but love yourself. You will be a greedy person who cares only about yourself, your comforts, your pleasures, your stuff, because your heart will follow your money. But if you give your money away, if you give it to charity, if you give it to the needy, the poor, the sick, to those who don't yet know Jesus, your heart will follow. You will care about other people. You will care about God and what he cares about. You will care about heaven and the reward that you will have with him. Your money is incredibly powerful because your heart will follow it. And so if you want to protect your heart from becoming greedy, if you want your heart to be godly and to love the things that God loves, you must give your money away. You must be generous. Now that always inspires the question, all right, how much do I have to give? How much does God expect me to give? Well, I don't know. In the Old Testament, it was about 22% on an annual basis that you had to give. In the New Testament, it's higher. It's much higher. There is no percentage. In the New Testament, the the bar is raised much higher. You must give until it hurts. That's the New Testament paradigm. You give until it hurts. You give until you're actually making a genuine, sustained sacrifice. It's actually costing you something you really want, something I guess you deserve to have, humanly speaking. You have to give it up. Then you've given enough when it actually hurts. Now, for some of you, that's going to be 10 bucks. You give 10 bucks and you don't have a lot of money, so it hurts at 10. Okay, that's good. For some of you, though, it's not going to be until you've given away hundreds of thousands of dollars on an annual basis that it hurts. That's how much you need to give. 
You need to give until it hurts. You need to give until you are making a real and sustained sacrifice. So how much do you have to give? I don't know. I just know you have to give until it's no longer comfortable to give. Until you've gone beyond what is reasonable, what is expected, what is safe. Until you've actually given till it hurts. That's how much God calls us to give. We need to give our money away. That's how we protect our heart from greed because our heart follows our money. You gotta give to others, especially those in need, until it hurts. That's how you keep yourself from becoming greedy. That's the second discipline that we have to practice on a regular basis. Third and final discipline. Practice the discipline of sacrifice. That's what Paul has in mind if you'll look back at verse seven. It says, actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? It's a hard verse. It's a convicting verse. So I think that we're all comfortable with the idea of, of not defrauding other people. We're comfortable with that command. Don't defraud someone. Okay, got it. But it's really hard when someone defrauds you and God expects you to just let it go. Someone insults you, someone hurts you, and, and you're just supposed to let it go. Now that requires a little clar- clarification. Remember, first of all, we're not talking about criminal cases here. When a crime is committed against you, you don't let that go. God wants justice. You go to the law. We're talking about civil cases, and should you let all civil cases go? Well, no. Some are big. Some, some need to go to the courts, or they need to come to the elders of the church to mediate. But, but some of the things where people hurt us or wrong us are relatively small. So a roommate stiffs you on a month of utilities. You tell them about it and they don't care. They're not going not to pay that month of utilities. Uh, or your neighbor, uh, the fence falls down and you fix it and your neighbor won't, won't pay half of it. Or somebody at work, they spread lies about you that, that damage your reputation. Those are, are all things that should not have happened. In all three of those cases, you deserve justice. It's your right to, to be paid what you're owed. It's your right to have people tell truth about you and not lie. So it is your right to press for justice in each of those cases. The question is, when it's a matter like that, a small matter, will you simply let it go? Are you willing to be wronged? Are you willing to be insulted and not get bitter about it, not spread gossip about it, but just forgive and let it go? Greedy people aren't. Greedy people are never willing to let anything go, any offense, any slight. They're going to press for justice. They're going to make sure and demand their rights. But Jesus is calling us to do the opposite, to, to let it go. That's actually the meaning behind his very famous words in Matthew five thirty nine. often misunderstood. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. This isn't violence. It's not somebody getting punched or, or mugged. This is an insult. It's like the white glove to the face, that idea. Jesus is saying when somebody insults you, be willing to just let it go. Don't press for justice. Be willing to let it go. That's how you show that you're not greedy. That's how you show that you're walking with the Lord. You're willing to let it go. Even though you have the right to press for justice, you're willing to sacrifice that right. That is the third discipline. If you will practice all three of these disciplines, gratitude, generosity, and sacrifice, you will guard your heart from greed. So here's how it works really particularly, um, to get get specific. Uh, I had a great conversation with some of my staff this week about greed and, and about how we fight it. And one of my staff members, Ryan Pale, brought up this excellent point. He said, greed is so hard for us because it's so hard to define. How do you know if you're being greedy? How do you know? Well, sometimes it's easy to tell. If you watch a Christmas carol and you see Ebenezer Scrooge, easy to see. That guy's greedy. 
And he's, he's a really greedy dude. But what about me? What about you? Is it greedy to go to a nice restaurant and order a steak? Is it greedy to buy a new phone when you did not technically need a new phone? Is it greedy to ask your boss for a raise? Is it greedy to buy a bigger house? How do you know if you're being greedy? Really hard to answer that question because greed cannot be defined by anything that has a number associated with it. You cannot define greed by the size of your paycheck. You cannot define greed by the value of your house. You can't define greed by by looking at anything external. How do you know if you're being greedy? It comes down to this. You look for those three disciplines, for those three habits in your life. So I don't care how much money you earn. I don't care what your salary is. I don't care how big your house is. If you are practicing these three disciplines, then you are by definition not being greedy. So even if you earn $30 million a year, if you are practicing gratitude, Morning, noon, and night, you give thanks to God for all of it because you believe that you don't deserve anything good in your life. And you're practicing the discipline of generosity. You are giving away money until it hurts. Now, if you're earning $30 million a year, that might be $29.5 million a year that you're giving away. You're giving away whatever is required until it hurts, until it's the discipline of generosity. And you're practicing the discipline of sacrifice. When someone wrongs you, when they insult you, you let it go. You don't press for your rights. You forgive and forget. If you are practicing those three disciplines as the settled habits of your life, then I don't care how big your paycheck is, you are not greedy. But if you're not practicing these disciplines, if this is not what your life looks like, then chances are, yeah, you're struggling with greed when you're falling to greed because you're not practicing these habits. As the men go back to prepare communion, if you want to think about how do I practice these disciplines in in my life, how do I fight greed, I think one of the most helpful things is to spend a little time thinking about the example that Jesus has set for us. When you look at Jesus, what you're really seeing in the life of Jesus is the antithesis of greed. Because what is greed? Greed is wanting more than is rightfully yours. So what was rightfully Jesus's? What what belonged to him rightfully? By right, by justice. Well, everything. Because he's creator. He made everything. So everything belonged to him. It was his right to demand it all. And yet he comes to earth and what does he do? He gives it all away. He humbles himself. He, he emptied himself. Philippians 2 says he gave it all away. Why? Out of love for others. So that he could go to the cross, take our sins upon himself and die in our place. He could take the, the debt that we owed to God and pay it for us so that we could be blessed. He rose from the dead so that we could get eternal life as a free gift, so that we could get forgiveness as a free gift. Jesus is the polar opposite of greed. And so as we take communion in a few minutes, what I want you to do is I want you to go before the Lord and I want you to just have a moment where you confess to God that that I'm greedy. Just be honest with him about that. We, We all are. We all struggle with greed. Just go before the Lord and confess that. God, I struggle with greed. I crave more than is rightfully mine. I am greedy just like my kids. I'm just better at hiding it. So God, please forgive me for that greed that's in my heart. Confess that to him and then give thanks that that God sent his son to deliver you from greed, from, from the sin of greed and every other sin. He sent his son and the price that Jesus had to pay to free you from greed was he had to die in your place. That to take your sins, including the sin of greed, upon himself and die as your sacrifice and then rise from the dead to defeat sin and death and now he offers you forgiveness and eternal life as an absolutely free gift. And so as the men come forward, if you guys want to come up, 
And as they pass the elements, I want you to take this time, go before the Lord and confess that you struggle with greed just like I do, and then give thanks that God's willing to forgive you and that he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, including the sin of greed, so that you could have eternal life as a free gift. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you that Jesus was willing to empty himself of everything that was rightfully his and instead to fill himself with our sin, to take all the ugliness that we have committed, all of the temptations that we have given into, into himself, into his own body, to go to the cross and to die as a sacrifice, as the payment that our sins deserved. We praise you and we thank you that that death couldn't hold him, that you raised him from the dead so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. We thank you for the gift of your son and, and looking at how good you are to give us your son, it makes our greed all the more inexcusable. Oh, we have no excuse for the fact that we are often discontent with what you've done in our lives that we crave more, that we want more wealth, we want more power, we want more influence, we want whatever it might be. Lord, please forgive us. Please forgive us that we have given in to greed. I pray that you would grow us to be people who are content, who are thankful. I pray that you would grow us to be people who are sacrificially generous, that we would give of our wealth, that we would give away our rights, that we would be willing to go to extreme measures to bless and help other people. I pray, Father, that we would live generous lives so that when the world sees Grace Bible Church, they would see you. They would see a God who is generous, a God who is sacrificially loving. I pray, Father, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, and that you would transform us, that you would work in our hearts this week, that that your word would sink in deeply, that your spirit would convict us of sin and grow us to be more like your son. In whose name we pray and for whose glory we gather this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. God bless you guys, I'll see you next week.